You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Somebody uh, the other day was talking about pastoral quirks, and they mentioned that I stand beside the pulpit a lot with my elbow on it, and I'm just going to keep doing that. I just It's pretty comfortable, if I'm being honest. Um, everybody knows that my father-in-law is a, uh, a really good storyteller, and uh, I am going to tell a story that he told me. He's told me a story a couple times, uh, but... Uh, it's, I'm, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to do it justice. I'm just, I was thinking about this, mor- this story this morning, and I think it pertains to what we want to talk about. Um, so he and George Barch were taking a, a ride in, 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 a, in their truck, and they were going to look at a piece of property. Um, it was a, you know, just a, a wooded piece of property. I don't know how many acres it was, but it was, it was a pretty big piece of land and it was going to, you know, they were thinking of maybe, uh, dad was thinking of maybe using it to hunt and, and that kind of thing or whatever. George Barch owned it. They were going to look at it. Um, if I'm being inaccurate, dad, just, why don't you come up here and tell the story? Uh, anyway, so they went to this piece of land and they drove around and, and then they got out of the truck and they walked around this piece of land. And then, uh, after a little while, dad said he noticed that it was getting dark and he didn't exactly know where he was because it was an unfamiliar piece of property. And it was increasingly aware that George Barch didn't know exactly where he was as well. And they didn't know where they left the truck. And... So they were kind of wandering around for a little while, and they realized that they were lost. And so they wandered, and uh, yeah, George didn't know where he was going. Dad really didn't know where he was going, but my father-in-law is a man of purpose. And, uh, and so it got to the point where they were, yeah, they were a little worried, and then Dad heard a car. And he just thought to himself that, that has to be a road. <laughs> uh, and so he orientated himself to the sound of that vehicle and he walked toward it. And I don't know if, if it was the same vehicle or it was a couple more vehicles down the road or, or whatever it was, but he ended up, he tried to go in as straight a line as he could and he ended up at the 34 highway. And then he knew where he was. Um, I think that's where some of us are today. We find ourselves a little bit lost. Maybe we're in a little bit of a fog and we need a voice. We need a sound that is going to orientate us to where we should be going. But for many of us, we just can't hear anything and we're we're clamoring. We are, we are hoping to hear the voice of God, and yet God seems to be incredibly silent. All we want is to hear one word, one sound, one thing that is going to, to, to let us know where we are and to where we should be going. but sometimes God is silent. And so I think the question is, 
what do we do when God is silent? Because we all know that the moments when God is silent are much more often than when he speaks. They're, they're more painful for sure. But what do we do when we, seem, we feel like we're flailing? We feel like we are not sure where to go. We feel completely lost. What do we do when God is silent? Last week, we witnessed a subtle but pivotal turn of events. And I was reading a book this week, and its opening line said this. Great events turn on small hinges. That's the book of Esther in a nutshell, isn't it? Great events turn on, on small hinges. Last week, we, we witnessed these pivotal turn of events. They seemed to be going this way. Everything seemed to be actually kind of going this way. And then all of a sudden, there was this subtle turn. There was this subtle change of events. The hinge turned, and, and things started to go a different, a different direction. You may remember we talked about the fact that the king couldn't sleep. And so he had his servants read the historical records to him. And instead of curing his insomnia, the reading that they were given or that he was given, it braced him. And the, the mention of Mordecai's heroism prompted the king to honor this unsung hero. And, and ironically, we know... Um, well, ironic from our perspective, I guess. The king had appointed Haman, Mordecai's sworn enemy, to herald Mordecai's praise of all things. And so as we witness this turn of events, we sense something more is going to happen. We, I mean, we know something is more is going to happen because we've read the story. We know how this is going to end, but we're still anticipating it. We know that there's something more brewing as we're waiting for this confounded second banquet to start. The deeper stirring here, the underlying thing that we're, what we're sensing is the sovereignty of God arranging all events preceding, uh, preceding and precisely according to his sovereign plan. And so these events... The king's insomnia, the building of the gallows, the, the parade through the streets of Mordecai. All these things usher us into a second banquet that Pastor Matt just read for us. As we contemplate those things, would you pray with me? Father, I, I, pray, that, I pray that these words that have been given this morning would stir our hearts. And as we look into your word, as we contemplate some of the things that happened so long ago in the life of Esther and Mordecai and everyone who lived there in Persia, I pray that we would be able to sense, seek, and glean some relevancy this morning. May your word not return void. May we listen, and may we act. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
You know, I, I've never met a person who, who read the book of Job and didn't come away from, from reading that book and, and pitying Job, giving Job their pity. I mean, the, the things that Job went through, we wouldn't wish upon our worst enemy. His is a terrible story of suffering. And for all the physical and for all the emotional suffering that he, the abuse that he took from his friends and from his wife and from everybody that knew him, if you read that story, you will notice that the hardest thing of it all for Job was this mysterious sense of God's silence. And that played out in Job's life. Um, I, th- I think for Job, not hearing from God and God being silent in his life meant that God was absent. And we go that way. We, we go there too, don't we? If we don't hear God's voice, if we don't hear God speaking to us, and I, I'm not talking audibly, okay, just, just so that we're aware. I'm, let's be careful with what we say, but I think God does speak to us through his word and <clears throat> through his spirit and all those sorts of things. So not to say that God can't do that. I'm just saying that we need to be careful that we don't get too spooky here or anything like that. But the things that played out in Job's life as God's absence, I think for us too, there are times in our life where we feel like God is, um, he's not speaking to us. We don't sense him in our life. We are, we are, we, we are floundering in a, in a wooded piece of land and we don't know where to go. And we take that silence that God has as his absence. And I I just want us to be very clear with each other that that's not what it means. God is not absent. He never is absent. He may be silent, but that is different than being absent. God is never absent. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And we need to recognize that. Um, So... Before we just kind of get into what chapter 7 has to say to us, <clears throat> I, I, I want us to, um, I want to talk about time a little bit. And I've given you this quote many times. I gave it to you for the first time. I searched it up this week because I don't have anything else to do, I guess. 2002, I gave you this quote first. Um, and it was from a Star Trek episode, of all things. Don't laugh, Claudette. Um, it is time is the fire in which we burn. I mean, I know that I've said that to you before. And basically, it, what it means is that we all live within time. We, time is fixed for us. We cannot change time. We live in the present. We look back to the past. We look forward to the future. But we are in the present. Um, and, and I would say for us that time is objectively measured, isn't it? If we want to know the the hour or the minute of the day, we look at our watch. If we want to know what day it is, we look at a calendar. If we want to know the year, uh, if you don't know the year, then I can't help you. Um, But but time is easily marked, isn't it? It's it's just a reality for us. It's objectively measured. Second, 
time is consciously accountable. Events are seen. They are dated. People are visible. Things are tangible. There is this realm of the five senses. Um, Sight, smell, touch, hearing, feeling. The world of time is tangible and it is visible. And, and, And the last thing I think about time is that it's rarely ignored or overlooked. Most of us know give or take, um, about every hour of the day, um, we can account for, for the hours that we have spent and we know at any given time what, you know, approximately what time of day it is because that is our world. It is real, it is measurable, it is understandable. It is the fire in which we burn. God is not like that at all. And we don't get it because time is our cage. But God exists outside of the realm of our time. He lives beyond it. God has no day. God has no month. God has no year. He has no past. He has no present. He has no future. We see history as a sequence of events that in a linear manner that start here and, and go and go and go and go and go and go and then here's the end. Beginning, end. That's the, the way that we view history, that we view time We see history that way, um, but God sees everything all at once in a flash, along with billions and trillions of other things that are going on at the same time. He's beyond it all. He created it all, and we can't grasp our minds around it. I read this thing um, this week um, in 1986, I think it was. Please don't quote me on this. I'm going to have to correct myself again. Um, There was someone in Brazil was looking up in the sky at night and saw a bright flash. And that was a supernova of a star that in um, the second that everything blew up or supernova or whatever it did, uh, in, in that moment, that star gave up more power and more light than our sun would, would give up in a trillion years. And the other thing is that it took, wrap your mind around this, it took 170,000 years for that light to go from the supernova, to be able to be seen on Earth. And light travels at 186 miles per second, uh, 1,000 miles per second. And all, I know that I'm overwhelming you. I'm just saying that this is cool because I, if we believe in a young Earth theory and, and we believe that God created the universe or whatever, did he create that light at a certain point so that it would reach us in 1986 or, or whatever it is? Here's my point. And I don't think you care about the numbers too much, but here's what I care about. God is awesome. And God created all that, and he created time, but he lives outside of it. And so for us to understand how God works and what God does and, and who he is and how he exists and all these different things, we can't because we're human and we're finite and he is infinite. God sees everything all at once. He is beyond it all. And that truth is extremely hard for us to grasp. 
It is ingraspable. I don't know if that's a word. <coughs> Ungraspable? Yeah, maybe. You remember the, the song? I got my wife to play it for me this week. Uh, in his time. Uh, in his time, in his time. I was going to sing it this morning, but I chickened out. Uh, God makes all things beautiful in his time. Uh, and then it says, Lord, please show me every day. God has no day that you're teaching me your way. God has a way. And you do just what you say in your time. I know that many of us have sung that song. Do we really believe that? Are we saying that we will wait? It's hard to wait sometimes, isn't it? Especially when God is silent. Uh, Philip Yancey, in his book, Disappointment with God, this is a great book, by the way, he says this, no matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from the perspective of a person trapped in time. Only at the time that we have attained God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every illness healed and the entire universe restored, only then will fairness reign. And then we will understand what role is played by evil and by the fall and by natural law in an unfair event like the death of a child. Until then, we will not know and we can only trust in a God who does know. And then he says this. We remain ignorant of many details, not because God enjoys keeping us in the dark, but because we do not have the faculties to absorb so much light. At a single glance, God knows what the world is about and how history will end. But we time-bound creatures have only the primitive manner of understanding. Not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith, then, means believing in advance what can only be seen in reverse. We have the godlike privilege, we are not God, but we have the godlike privilege of knowing how Esther's story will end because we can go to the back and we can read it and we, and we can see the sequence of events in reverse. But, but think about the people that were living that story. Think about the people that were threatened with genocide. Think about the people in chapter three and chapter four. They didn't know that. We've read the book, we're able to read it in reverse, and we're able to give them peace and comfort if we could speak to them. We could tell Mordecai to wait. We could tell him to rest. It's going to all be okay. We could tell Esther to move when it's God's moment because we have the book. We know the exact right moment. But in chapter 3, there's this sustained period of silence, and the king promotes Haman, and we go, King, don't do that. He's an idiot. He, he, is, he is not the right person. He's a bad guy. He hates the Jews. He's going to work out this murderous pl- plot, but, but King Ahasuerus, he, he promotes him anyway. And Mordecai tries to motivate Esther, and she's hesitant at first. And, and we could say to Esther, Esther, just, just go, go to it. As the queen, you can make a difference. 
I know that because I read a little bit later on in your story that, that you did indeed make a difference. But she vacillates and, and there's silence. In the meantime, Haman, aggravated at Mordecai, brings gallows, builds gallows to hang him and nobody is seemingly there to stop him. And, and if we had lived then, would we have wondered where God was? Of course we would have wondered. We would have wondered why he was silent, why he wasn't intervening, why he wasn't stepping in to stamp this evil and this hatred out. Why wasn't he doing anything? And then we know that there is this subtle change of events. There is this great event that turns on a small hinge. In chapter 6, the king can't sleep. When was the last time that made news? I mean, nobody on CTV has ever reported to us that Justin Trudeau can't sleep. Why would we care? Um, Out of the blue, Mordecai's name comes up out of obscurity, and he's hearing the record, and, and he's listening to the notes of the Chronicles, and he hears Mordecai's name, and he hears that this man saved his life. And then right after that sleepless night, who's in the courtyard? Well, Haman is in the courtyard. And Haman is there, ironically, to ask the king to hang Mordecai. But instead, the king has other plans. And coincidentally, um, the king calls him and says, who should we honor? Haman thinks, well, he's talking about me, obviously, because he's arrogant and narcissistic. I'm glad you think that. Um, Haman thinks... I. I think you should uh, do all these things. And he sets them out and king says, yep, that's what you do. Go do that for Mordecai. So Haman is this man who takes Mordecai out for a walk on a, on a horse proclaiming his greatness. Do you see the, the subtle things that made great events change? My point is this. It's easy to live a life of stagnation and it's easy to anticipate that nothing is ever going to change. It's easy if we're honest to just stay in the middle of the foggy woodland and just exist there because finding your way out is hard. Especially when God is silent. Here's what I want us to understand. What we need to remember and realize and remind ourselves over and over and over again is you need to realize that the things that happen in your life, the the places where you find yourself, the, the times when you hear God is silent, when you realize that God is silent, you need to realize that none of that, none of it, is coincidental. Take the word coincidental out of your vocabulary and remember the words to the song, in his time, in his time, God makes all things beautiful. Not in your time, in his time. That's true in chapter six. And then you get to chapter seven of Esther and there's this this 
this great event that's turning on this small hinge, the Sequid Banquet. We're here finally. That's awesome. And, and, we, and it's attended by Haman and the king and the queen and the conversation that they have over this banquet. Um, it starts out calm at first. And I haven't opened my Bible to there yet. I apologize. Um, and we get to chapter 7. Verse 14, or, sorry, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to have the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. You know, that's the third time that he said that. Interesting, right? He said it in chapter 5, verse 3. He said it in chapter six, 5, verse 6. She didn't answer those times. For whatever reason, she sensed that the timing wasn't right. Well, now the timing appears to be right because in chapter 7, she does answer. She knows that this is the right time. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And she hasn't even told him everything that's on her heart, right? She hasn't even told him till this moment that she's Jewish. And now she tells him. And she, in verse, uh, take a look at verse 3. Then the queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Boy, talk about a change, right? Things have changed here. Nothing is now a foregone conclusion. They, things are heading a completely different direction. And again, I would just say this, that we need to remind ourselves that no matter where things are heading for us or, or no matter what things are going on in our life, no matter how bleak it, it, it seems, nothing is absolutely permanent when God is involved. God can move in the heart of a king or in a president or a prime minister or you or anyone else. He can change the mind of your mate. He can move in the affairs of your, your neighborhood. He can alter the decisions that prime ministers and presidents make. The, between the Jews and the Palestine, he can move in that situation. In his time. Because none of his world is limited by, by, by time. Visible, tangible. He lives in the realm that, that transcends that. He's all powerful. He's ready to move. He makes it beautiful in his time. So, so Esther answers with that same courage. Who is responsible? Look at verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. No kidding. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You know, Haman hasn't had the best 24 to 48 hours, has he? I mean, this is probably the moment where he has finally realized that it would have been better to just stay at home that day. 
He becomes terrified. And we are, as we're reading this, we go, finally. Like, why is this, why has it taken so long to get here? You know, I mean, we, we want justice. We want evil to be stamped out. We want it to be paid for. We want good rewarded. It's built into our system. And Haman ought not to be running loose and calling shots because he's evil. They ought to finish him off here and now. And the king says, well, that's the plan. And verse 9 tells us, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. We don't want to rejoice in death and, and, and that kind of thing, but we rejoice when evil is addressed, right? And it appears this is his time. This is his way. This is how God works. And, and you know, we have used the words, we have used both these words today. We have used the word ironic, uh, ironically, and we have used coincidental. And so we would read something like this. And in fact, uh, writers call it irony when, when these kinds of things are written this way. We would call it ironic. Do you know what God calls it? God calls it sovereignty. They hanged Haman on the gallows, which was prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. That's what verse 10 says. It's not coincidental. It's not ironic. It's God working in his time. The question remains, though, in the time we have left, since we are trapped in the cage of time, and we are finite human beings, How can we be sensitive to the way God works? Because sometimes God is silent. Never absent, but silent. So how can we how can we be sensitive to the way that God works? Because I would say this that even though God appears to be silent to you does not mean that He's not working, that He's not doing stuff. He is weaving His way and and He He is He is moving events according to his plan. Even though he has seemed silent to you and, and you don't understand what he's doing, does not mean that he's not there, and does not mean that he's absent, doesn't mean that he's not working, he is. And so the question isn't, is God you know, angry and pouting? Is, is he absent? Has he gone away for a holiday? You know, it's, it's not that. That's not what we should be asking. It's how do we understand how God works? How are we sensitive to the way that God works in our lives and in the lives of the people around us? How do we do that when God is silent? How do we recognize the, the subtle change of events? Um... I would say this. I would say that the the fog or the you finding yourself in a in a dark wooded area. Um, I read a book by Chuck Swindoll, and he likened it to being in the middle of a vast lake, 
um, where there is, where you don't know where you are. You don't know where the shore is and you're flailing around. And uh, I would say this, the fog on your lake or in your wooded area that you're, you find yourself in, that wooded piece of land, it's neither accidental or fatal. Sometimes when we find ourselves in those situations, we panic and we flail and we dog paddle like mad and, 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 and we're, we're so intent on staying afloat that we can't hear the sounds around us that will orient us to, to our situation and to the direction we should be going. But we need to be listening and we need to be watching for the way God is working because sometimes it's hard to see, but it's always there, and we need to be sensitive to that. How can we be sensitive to the way that God works, especially when we're, we feel like we're in trouble? Let's be careful here. Like I said, God's given you a mind, and we're not talking about anything spooky here, not talking about this audible voice that says, go that way, or, or whatever. I don't know if God would sound that way. Um, but each one of us, God works and he speaks into our lives in different ways. So, so while we're waiting, don't, you know, don't go for the spooky stuff. Don't go for the people that want to read your palm or read their palm or look into a ball or, or read a horoscope. Or, here's, what I, here's my best advice to you. 22 years, this is the best advice. Get on your knees and pray. Find someone that you trust and you know to be a godly person and get their counsel. And then just wait. Where you find yourself is not accidental and it's not fatal. It's God working in your life, not in a way you can understand. The the second thing I I would say is this, the, the workings of our God are related to our crises and unrelated to our clocks. That's why God doesn't care if this is the last day that you can buy a car on sale. It's why God doesn't care that it's already 12 o'clock. Look beyond the present. Do your best to do that. Pray and make your life a prayer and tell him in anguish if necessary. The horror of the waiting Express your panic. Tell him that you, you're not sure how long you can exist out on the, in the trees or, or on the lake staying afloat. You're not sure how you're going to do. Do you remember Habakkuk? How long, O oh Lord, will I cry out to you violence and you will not hear me? Habakkuk, he knew how to express his displeasure and his panic and his, his un. Uh, not being able to understand what God was doing. Uh, You know, when I actually, and I don't do this well, but when I actually remind myself, usually it's Claudette that reminds me that I need to pray, but when I actually sit down and I do it, it helps. It helps me handle the issues here in this place, this church. It helps me when when I can't cry quite grasp the meaning of something that I'm struggling with. It, it helps when I'm dealing with big decisions, when I'm working with difficult people. 
<laughs> or when they're dealing with difficult me, uh, when something in my own life is sort of twisted and struggling, I find prayer to be a calming perspective. And I don't know why I don't, I don't know why it's not my default setting. I don't know that when something happens in my life, I, I don't immediately fall to my knees. Because it's hard sometimes, right? We, we don't necessarily do that. But when we do, it helps. Do you find that? Let's stay at that. Let's, let's be a house of prayer. Here's, here's another thing. La- last thing. The surprises in store in the way that God works are not merely ironic or coincidental. Do you know what they are? They are sovereignly designed. Trust God for justice. You may not live to see the justice or to see the evil stamped out. You may not see that, but let me, let me just say that it will come. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we got to trust him on that. I mean, think about the idea of irony and coincidence. Think about the cross. The, the Romans plotted. The, the Jewish leaders and officials, they... Uh, they danced. They must have drunk half into the night thinking to themselves, we finally got him. That problem is, is away. But God was engineering things. So would we say that everything that happened surrounding in, in Passion Week that led up to the cross and then beyond the cross, would we say that that was ironic? Would would we say that that was coincidence? You wouldn't let me say that because that's heresy. <laughs> I wouldn't let you say it. That wasn't coincidental. What looked like the ending was in fact the beginning. And so please hear me on this. There are some of you who know the words to the tune that we, we've mentioned, In His Time. And you have sung that, In His Time, In His Time. God makes all things beautiful in His time. And you know, you have sung that song and you, some of you don't even know God. You know words about God. You may even carry a book that he wrote. You may even bow for prayer when Christians pray. You probably at your local church, this church maybe, you attend more than some of the people you know to be believers in Jesus. And you're proud of that. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But you have never, you know in your heart, you have never really made that connection that Elsie was talking about this morning. You're still stuck in that wooded area, that land. You're in the middle of that lake and you're lost. Do you know that there is another part to that song and it says this, my life to you I bring. May each song 
that I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. Those words are sung by a person who has gone to the cross and beyond. And so, you know, you can forget everything that I've said already. I hope you don't. But if you do, remember this. This is the smartest thing that you can ever do. Come absolutely as you are to the place that will make a difference. It's the foot of the cross. Look up and see the one hanging on the cross. The most unjust event is before you. He is hanging on the cross. The purpose, the, the, the only perfect one who ever lived, there are dead, uh, he is dead and there are blood stains on his head and his arms, his feet, And he screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that little tiny space on earth in the present, God was silent. And Jesus couldn't hear him. But you know what? He wasn't absent. He had turned his back, but he was still there. And Jesus bore our sin. And then after that silence... And after that back turn, God said, amen, and he raised Jesus from the dead. So the smartest thing you could ever do is come to Jesus exactly as you are to tell him you're a sinner. You have nothing to hide. Believe me, it won't surprise him because he will take, he, he, he takes all our hypocrisy and he takes our filthy thoughts and he takes our impure motives and he takes our pride and our impatience and our religious morality and he takes it all and he forgives us and he, and he takes us home to be with him because of not how good we are or how good we think we are, but because of his amazing grace. He will take a wretch like you because of his grace. I know that to be the truest words that I ever have spoken. Do you know why I know that he will take a wretch like you? Because he took a wretch like me. I will not beg you but I will invite you since the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the penalty that you and I deserve which was death for sin since he paid that price and he's been raised from the grave and lives victorious over it all in this realm that transcends time and space and events and people he is able to woo you into his family and I will trust his spirit to do that amen let's pray Sometimes, Father, it's so hard to hear. But I pray that we would stay still long enough to be able to hear the sounds, the voices, the the noises that are going to orientate us back to moving forward towards you. I pray that that we would use these moments of silence not to, to... to move further away from you but but rather to move closer to learn more about you and how you love us and what you want us to do in this world God I pray that we would pray as a church as individuals I pray that we would be in your word 
I thank you for this book and I thank you for the things that it has led us to and, and Father I pray that you would help us to, to know our eternal destination for sure we pray this in Jesus name Amen